people say, well, being strategic, you're, you're either born with that or you're not. It's not something that we can teach. I can't teach Marsha or, or, or Bill to be strategic. And, you know, the research shows that you can move people to be more strategic if they practice it and they have the baseline knowledge. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. It's just me today. Marcus is with a client, but I am very excited because I have with me today Rich Horwath, who is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestselling author of eight books on strategic thinking, including the forthcoming title Strategic, which we'll be talking about. He's also the CEO of the Strategic Thinking Institute, where he works with frontline managers at companies like ESPN, FedEx, and Pfizer to develop their strategic thinking capabilities, which you folks will know we are all about here on The Thinking Leader. Rich, hello and welcome to the show. Bryce, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. I'm a big fan of your work uh, with American Icon and and, uh, and uh, Red Teaming, so uh, excited for the conversation today. Likewise, likewise. So tell me, how did you become interested in strategic thinking? What was your journey? So I started doing strategy consulting and, you know, typical strategic planning sessions. And we were at a break in one of the sessions having coffee. And I was talking with one of the mid-level managers. And he said, you know, Rich, I just had my performance review. And my manager said, I'm too tactical. I need to be more strategic. How do I do that? And, you know, Bryce, going back, this is about 25 years ago, you know, most of the books on strategy were from people like Michael Porter out of Harvard and C.K. Prahalad out of Michigan, and they were really yep. around corporate strategy. Right. And there wasn't really anything at that point that was more for the individual manager or leader to be strategic day in and day out. So that was really my uh, my epiphany. And I said, you know, that's really what I want to focus on is helping the individual leaders be more strategic day in and day out. So that really was uh, what started this journey. Well, Rich, that's such an important point, because, you know, when we talk about strategy, most people immediately go to the top of the house. Most people start thinking about, you know, grand, the, the business equivalent of, of what in the military is called grand strategy, right. which is, you know, you know, the, 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 the global geopolitical chessboard, if you will. Yep. And yet strategy happens at, as you know, every level of leadership, but there's this, this mid level of leadership is often where success or failure happens. And it's amazing because there isn't a lot of emphasis put in developing strategic thinkers and strategic thinking at that level of organizations. And so you have people who, who, who need to be thinking strategically, but who aren't trained in that and aren't given the opportunity to be trained in that in a lot of organizations, don't you think? Yeah, you know, Bryce, that's a great point. The classic example is Kodak. We know, you know, what went, went away and most people say, well, they weren't innovative, but they actually had the first digital camera. Yeah. The issue was the, you know, the senior leadership had the vision that we need to move down this road. But what they didn't do 
was they didn't have mid-level leaders that understood the vision and that realized this is the way we need to go. And so that frozen middle really prevented Kodak from adopting digital and getting down that road. So, you know, there's lots of examples where if you as a senior leader aren't engaging the rest of your workforce in conversations about strategy, about harnessing their thinking and insights, then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's like trying to hand out the tablets of the Ten Commandments and say, go forth and strategize. That right. doesn't really work anymore. Absolutely. You know, and I love what you said about the frozen middle. We have a client, one of the biggest banks in the world, that they refer to this as the permafrost layer. <laughs> and you know, it's 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 an apt analogy because you get a lot of people who kind of, you know, become stuck in that position in their careers and stuff. And yet, you know, this is you can have the best thinking and the best vision and the best strategy in the world at the top of the house. But if it can't penetrate through that permafrost layer or, as you put it, the frozen middle, mm-hmm. it's not going to reach the folks on the factory floor. It's not going to reach the folks in the retail business. And it's not going to f- reach the folks at the coalface. And those are where execution happens. And so, you know, this is something that is that is you look at the most successful strategic thinker thinking leaders, folks like my mentor, Alan Mulally at Ford and at Boeing. Mm -hmm. They were so focused on driving that strategic thinking down throughout the organization, creating mechanisms to cascade that type of thinking down and then feedback back up, too. So you burn through that frozen middle and create a top to bottom feedback loop where people know what's going on, are aligned on the strategy, and are also feeding back, here's what we need to do to adjust, the str- to, to meet the strategic goals and objectives. Yeah, a- absolutely. And you know, th- those are great examples. Uh, Procter & Gamble with A.G. Lafley is another example where you know, they said, we're going to have strategic thinkers at all levels. And by doing that, what you do is you create a, a, you create a learning, a true learning organization, because strategic thinking is built on insight. And I define an insight as a learning that leads to new value. So if you've got that middle group and they don't feel that there's a value, that they, that, that they, leaders see value in them in producing insights, then they're going to shut down and they're not going to share some of the ideas that they're getting from the customer because they tend to be closer to the customer. So as a senior leader, you've got to reach out to those folks intentionally on a regular cadence and have conversations about some of the key business issues. And that's the way you start to create that that virtuous cycle of insight. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you as a senior leader have those conversations, encourage that dialogue with, with your mid-level managers. Yeah, one of one of the things I've seen be successful in some organizations is to to uh, to create a retrospective timeline of the insights for the organization and what that led to from a product, a service, a culture perspective. So show them examples from the past historically in your business on ways that insights have created new value. Uh, I also find it interesting in some cases to show that insight timeline from competitors as well. So what, right. what insights do competitors have? And then also you can show examples in, in obviously your, a lot of your work centers around competition too. You know, show, show areas where the competition leapfrogged us and, and because right. they acted on an insight. And so I think the first part is really that awareness that insights are important. Here's what happens when we do have insights in our company. Here's what competitors have done with insights. And then 
it's important, I think, Bryce, is, 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 as you know, we've got to create some type of channel or forum for people to, to share those insights, collect those insights, and keep those insights circulating throughout the organization. So that can be an intranet. It can be town hall meetings. Uh, it can be short videos these days. But you've got to find channels for people to share those insights. Oh, I really love that, Rich, because, you know, it's it's it, you talked about creating learning organizations. I mean, this is this is the way you do this is you, you create opportunities for the organization to learn from itself and to institutionalize learnings, which I like. And, you know, I think back to, you know, one of the things that that uh, that Jim Collins advocated that that all these many years ago that has stuck with me. I don't remember if it was in Good to Great or if it was in in, in one of his follow up books is is doing, uh, I'm trying to think how he phrased it, and I, I believe it was Jim Collins, um, is is conduct postmortems without blame. And, mm. you know, I think that's that gets into what you're talking about is when you, when you have successes to figure out what did we do that made this a success? And when you have failures, rather than, you know, the boss walking through the halls of, of corporate headquarters, you know, you know, with a with a with a bloody axe, looking for who's next to, to to pay the price for this failure, instead using it as an opportunity to say, right, let's 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 all learn from this about what went wrong and what we could do to avoid that going forward in the future. And I think that's it's, you know, this is the thing though is most organizations don't do any of these things. Most organizations are just focused on moving one piece of paper to from this pile to that pile or sending this email to that person with your comments on it. And there, there's people at particularly at this mid level are so nose to the grindstone right. that they're not, they're not thinking like this. They're not seeing this and they're not being given time to think and see like this. Yeah. I think one of the mantras that you and I both uh, ascribe to is the idea that um, we, you know, most people react they don't, mm-hmm. they don't think first. And, you know, we're in a, we're in a world where we're reacting to text messages on our phones, emails on the computer, and we don't take control of our mind and our thinking. You know, I'm a big believer that the first hour or two of the day should really be yours. It shouldn't be influenced by other people's agenda through text messaging and emails. It should really be, what are a couple things I want to accomplish to help myself and my team be successful today? Carve out that first hour or two. But I think if we, if we immediately jump on the phone, we get into that reactive state. And again, re, you know, reactions for bumper cars at the carnival. We don't want to be bouncing from one thing to the next. I, I, it's so interesting that you say that, Rich, because I, I just finished reading Robin Sharma's book, The 5 a.m. Club, uh. and, uh, and it has convinced me to, to set my clock forward uh, and bite the bullet and get up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't joined the 5 a.m. Club yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm more at kind of the 545 uh, level now, <laughs> working my way towards 5 a.m., but, but it's life-changing. It's life-changing to have that time in the morning that is yours, but it only works, as you say, if you protect it. I mean, the hardest thing for me, having decided to get up you know, an hour earlier, is to not look at this yes. and to, to not get on it at all and to say, this is time that I'm going to use to think, I'm, uh, that I'm going to use to get ready for the day, that I'm going to do some reading, I'm going to do some writing, and I'm going to do all of this stuff before... I, I look at this and say, oh, crap, <laughs> and start <laughs> reacting. Um, right. So, you know, I love this. And, you know, it, it, and, and so 
that's a big opportunity for individuals to start moving from reactive mode to thinking mode. The challenge still remains for organizations, though. You know, this is something that we've talked about on the show a lot. Um, you know, my, my, my colleague Marcus is a retired RAF uh, officer. I spent, you know, a good bit of time with the military uh, working on the book Red Teaming. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, that, that we have talked about is that the military in the US and in the UK and in a lot of other, at least, you know, developed countries and even some less developed countries makes a real effort to provide leadership training for officers at all levels, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, the, if you're a, if you're a flag officer in the U S military, you're going to get at least cumulatively a month of leadership development, you know, continuing education training every single year. Mm -hmm. And if you're a mid-level manager at a large corporation, you'd be lucky if you get to go to a one half day workshop a year. Right. And, 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 and it, it's, it's almost, a, well, it is appalling, the lack of investment in leadership development that you see in these organizations. And, you know, I, we talked about this on the show again a few weeks ago, but I want to hit it here because it goes right to what you're saying. I was doing a program last month in, in Germany for the U.S. Army 7th Army Training Command, which is responsible for training all ground forces, U.S. ground forces and allied ground forces in Europe and Africa mm-hmm. about how to cultivate the army leadership in the region that we're going to need in 2040. Mm-hmm. And one of my fellow speakers, who's a professor at, uh, from SAMS, the School of Advanced Military Studies at, at, at the Command and General Staff College, the most elite U.S. Army uh, strategic thinking school, mm-hmm. um, the he made the observation that I just loved, and I've, I've used it with every client since then, because it's so true in business as well, which is that there, as he put it, there is no class or workshop that you can give an officer in 2040 to make up for all the leadership development training that you didn't do for them between now and then. There is no class that you can give to a colonel in 2038 that's going to make up for the fact that you didn't invest the time and energy and money in training that colonel when he was a lieutenant today till till then. And that's so true. It's true in business too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's 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 again, it's just the idea of investment. What do you know, we if you value something you have to invest in it. So if you have a personal relationship, if you don't invest any time or energy into it, that relationship's going to, to wither away. Uh, right. If you have a, a garden in the backyard and you don't invest <laughs> any water, any plant food, it's going to wither and die. The same thing what comes from our, with our business acumen, our emotional intelligence, uh, any of the business skills that we have, if we're not practicing those on a regular basis and getting opportunities to develop them, um, they're, they're going to wither and die. I mean, if we if you play the guitar once a year or golf once a year, you're not going to be good. And to your point, if we do strategy once a year, we are not going to be strategic. So I, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. We've got to be able to have the ability to invest in the people and the skill sets that are going to drive that success, not just today, but down the road. So what are some of the things that you, that you talk to your clients about in terms of helping them make the case for making that investment and taking the time? And I often find that it's more about time than money. Um, you know, it's, it's, I've had a lot of companies tell me, 
I'll pay you any amount of money to do this training, but you have to do it in, in, in 60 minutes or less. And <laughs> right. I say, you know, I can't do anything meaningful for you in 60 minutes or less. So, you know, but I mean, how, how do you, how do you make, have that conversation um, to help create the time and the resources for that learning, for that strategic thinking? Well, most of my conversations initially start with the CEO of the organization. So whether him or her, uh, typically the, the, the research shows that CEOs are very uh, adept at physical fitness. So on average, a CEO exercises 45 minutes a day, which is which is pretty impressive when you consider yeah, very impressive. Their, their schedule. So, you know, the, the, the analogy I make to them is, look, you, you invest 45 minutes a day in your physical fitness. Um, you've got to also invest and your people need to invest in strategic fitness. If you invest, if you run once a year for 30 minutes, you are not going to be physically fit. If your people um, think strategically for 30 minutes or, or, or a half day a year when they're doing strategic planning, they are not going to be strategic. And if they're not strategic, that means they're not going to be able to make decisions. So you're not going to be able to delegate and your, your senior team's not going to be able to delegate. And you're going to lose any type of velocity uh, that you could have in the organization. And as you know today, Bryce, velocity is so important, whether it's insight velocity, decision velocity, execution velocity, and velocity you know, it, it, it's it's speed in a given direction. And, and what I'm seeing today, especially at the senior levels, is the, the organizations that haven't prepared their mid-level and frontline people to think strategically are the ones that get the bottlenecks at the top of the organization because they got to make every decision or everything gets escalated to them. And they know it and they feel it. So that typically is something that resonates with senior leaders is, look, if you're not helping people invest in being strategic, thinking strategic, planning strategically, you and your team are going to be making all the decisions. That's going to slow you down. And as Reed Hastings from Netflix said, you know, companies rarely die from moving too fast, but they frequently die from moving too slow. And I think we're seeing that right. today. Absolutely. And, you know, that that is so true. And I love the analogy about the time that you invest in your personal fitness versus the time you invest or allow your people to invest in their professional fitness, because that's really what this is. Strategic thinking is professional fitness. If you are a leader then this is because this is the this is the you know learning how to think more strategically is the equivalent of hitting the gym for your career and you know it, you know having having good good strategic thinking skills and critical thinking skills is like having a good beach bod you know if you're if you're a leader <laughs> you know and and you know just as no one wants to go and put on a on a on a swimsuit or a bikini who doesn't who doesn't uh, look like they're ready to why would you want to throw your people into into the maelstrom of this volatile and uncertain world that we all operate in today without having them be, have the 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 strategic fitness to cope with that and i think part i think you hit on something that's really important i think people misunderstand i think people equate strategy with slow like if I'm if I'm if I'm being strategic, it means I'm I'm not acting. There's an element of truth to that in a certain sense, in the sense if you're being strategic, you're not reacting. Right. But if you're being strategic, it's a it, you know ideally, as you know, 
it's a flow. You're, it's not strategy is not ideally something that happens at a three day retreat once a year. Strategy is something that happens every single day in the organization. And you're constantly, you're constantly refining it and stuff. And if you, if you make that, I think that's, I, I think that's where the problem is, Rich. I think that people, because people do strategy so poorly by and large, and they've turned it into an strategic thinking into an event. Yeah. Then they think if I'm, if I'm going to think strategically, it means I have to stop what I'm doing and probably go to a different location mm-hmm. and, you know, have some, have some, some, you know, uh, food laid out and stuff and all this stuff before, <laughs> before I start thinking strategically, cause that's what we've done. Whereas, whereas you and I both know it's something you should be doing on, on your phone call every day with your team. Exactly. And, you know, it's amazing. You think about a professional athlete, football, soccer, whatever sport, baseball, they practice 90% of the time and they compete 10% of the time. And in business, it's really flipped to, we're competing a hundred percent of the time and we're practicing zero percent of the time. So right. that, you know, that, that's a, that's a recipe for burnout. And I think that's what we've seen the last couple of years is people who are just to your point, constantly acting and reacting um, without stopping to think about what are we doing? How are we doing it? And could we do it differently or better? Those are the people that do get burned out because they're, they're not getting off the treadmill. Right. Right. So what are some of the what are some of the the specific uh skills or techniques that you talk to your clients about? Um I, I I've seen mention in your in your new book of of the three A's. What are what are the three A's? Yeah, so so what I've tried to do to your point, Bryce, is you know, we we want to turn strategy, like you just said, I think is a great point, from that annual event, like a birthday where it happens once a year, there's a lot of signage and fanfare, and then it goes away. So I, I've tried to use those three A's as really a trigger to get people to think more strategically on a regular basis. So the first A is acumen. So any good strategy should be built on an insight. And again, an insight is a learning that leads to new value. So we need to be asking ourselves, we think about what we're doing each day, What's the new value that I'm providing either to my internal team or to my external customers? What's that new value look like? So once we determine that, then allocation, that second A, is really how do we configure our resources, our time, our talent, our budget, our capital, in order to, to, to focus on that value? And again, as you know, great strategies is much about what we choose not to do as it is about what yep. we choose to do. So part of allocation is saying we're going to focus here, but we're not going to focus in these other three areas that could be good opportunities because we really want to maximize our, our, our time here. And then that third A is action. And action is really how are you going to stay focused on the priorities so that you're not spreading your resources evenly across every possible thing you can do so that people just feel like they're treading water day in and day out and that there's no there's no focus. You know, one of the biggest causes of, of, of poor strategy execution is too many priorities. People don't yep. know what to focus on. And as a senior leader, mid-level leader, you've got to give your people that direction. A hundred percent. And, you know, this is, you know, I, I'm a big student of military history and, and, and most of my metaphors come from that that milieu. This is this is this is this is military strategy 101. This goes back to you know the 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 18th century concentration of force yep. and focus 
your forces in one area. And if you look at if you look at Russia's ill-conceived uh, invasion of Ukraine, there are many reasons why it failed. But one of the chief ones is is it was everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. It was it was an attempt to swarm the Ukrainians with simultaneous attacks from the north, the south, the east, um, and air and ground. And guess what? They didn't concentrate their forces anywhere. They, 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 it, it all was just a hot mess. Yep. And it was, and, and, and yet you see businesses doing stuff like that all the time where they're, because it goes to the reaction, right? People yep. say the, you know, leaders, leaders pick up their phone in the morning and they're like, oh, you know, you know, sale in the, the Chinese market is contracting. Okay. We got to, we got to now recalibrate that. Well, but, oh, but we have an opportunity in Europe. So we better take care, you know, and it's just, it's just like, whack-a-mole. It's just like, you know, there's no thought to it. And I loved what you said about the first day, acumen and, and, and how strategy, real strategy comes from insights. And there's another study that you that you quote in your book that I, I really, really like, which is uh, from MIT Sloan School of Management that 80% of mid-level managers say their senior leaders fail to kill unsuccessful initiatives quickly enough. And, and, and this is the thing is, is people get insights and they make strategic choices based on those insights, but reality changes. And this is one of the things that right. we are constantly teaching our clients all the time right now is that decision-making is not a process. It's a practice now mm-hmm. because you can have the best insight and the best idea today, but it may change six weeks from now. And if you just continue to paddle on, blindly right it doesn't matter anymore and you know it's it and so i i think that that is so true that 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 things get started and there's no there's no recalibration there's no there's no course correction there's no adjustment and a good strategy a great strategy has the room for that built in you know i'm going to i'm going to use a an an a an Alan Mulally analogy or story again to illustrate this, mm-hmm. you know, his strategy to save Ford Motor Company when he took over in the fall of 2006 was four points. Mm-hmm. Restructure the company to operate profitably at the changing demand and model mix, yep. build cars and trucks people want and value, work together effectively as one team and finance the plan. Yeah. And, and the beauty of such a simple strategy is that it allows for flexibility. So when the global financial crisis happened mm-hmm. two years later, and all of his team came running into his office and said, what are we going to do? We need a new strategy. The world's falling apart. The global you know, automobile sales have collapsed worldwide. Alan said, what, what, what in this is, is no longer relevant? One, we need to restructure the company to operate profitably at the changing demand and model mix. Well, the demand has collapsed. Yep. So we still have to do that. We have to restructure the company to operate profitably at this reduced market. Yes. Two, build cars and trucks people want and value. All the more important now that that people aren't buying as many, we need to make sure that we're top of their choice list. Mm-hmm. Three, do we still need to work together effectively as one team? Yeah, more so than ever. Mm-hmm. Four, finance the plan. Finance the plan means something different today than it did six months ago, but we still have to do it. Yep. And and I think that very few leaders understand that strategy it's particularly high level strategy has to be simple enough and broad enough that it can it can it can remain in place 
and have the room within those, within its, its, its lines of effort to pivot and adjust, but mm-hmm. still go in their same direction. And, you know, it became such a, such a point of contention with, with Alan and his CFO. His CFO is like, no, we have to stop everything we're doing because we have, we're going to run out of money. He's the one person, the only person in his tenure that he had to say, you know, sorry, but, you know, we need to yeah. replace you because this, we're not going to change the strategy. Right. And they were right. They came out of the crisis as the strongest automaker in, in, in the United States. And that's hard for people to do because most people want to react. And he did the same thing at Boeing. You know, he talked, he was on the, he was our first guest on this podcast almost a hundred episodes ago. He talked about how at 9-11, mm-hmm. he came, he flew back to, to, to Seattle from, he was in Japan, met with his senior leadership team. And they're like, Oh, what are we going to do? We have to, you know, you know, the, the, the world has ended here. All the airlines are canceling their orders for new planes. He's like, no, we just need to calm down. We have a strategy. We need to yeah. refine. We need to figure out what needs to change to make that strategy still function in this very changed world. Yeah. We don't need to, we don't need to go and erase the whiteboard and start over. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, th- you know, those are great examples. And I think, you know, he he's a leader, you know, th- that obviously, you know, extremely well and, you know, such a great book that you've written. It, it One of the things that I think that we often forget is the discipline that comes with setting strategy. And, you know, discipline is really about doing what's right for the organization, not what might cover my risk here or make me look better here or make me more popular with people or do what people think is is best. It's the discipline to say, this is what we believe and this is what we're going to do. And I think, you know, sometimes that's an intangible, but it's a powerful intangible. And I think that's a great example of, you know, staying the course and having the discipline. Once you set those guardrails, keep those guardrails. We don't need to go off road. I love that. I love that. Well, let's take a short break here. When we come back, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about your new book, Strategic and and Strategy as a Skill. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back to the show. Rich, this has been such a Interesting conversation. I want to I want to talk about your new book, Strategic. The subtitle is "The Skill to Set Direction, Create Advantage, and Achieve Executive Excellence." What do you What do you What do you mean? The skill. Most people don't think of strategy as a skill. Well, when we think about strategic, and if you look in the dictionary, the definition is of or relating to strategy. So not necessarily really helpful to the, to the, you know, to the working person out there. So I've tried to (laughs) to define strategic in a little bit more useful way, hopefully, as possessing insight that leads to advantage. So Mm. when we think about strategic, let's say a strategic plan, a plan can possess insight that leads to advantage. And that's ideally what a good plan does. A person can be strategic. They can possess insight that leads to advantage. And so the question then becomes, 
if how, how do we how do we possess that insight? How do we gain that insight? And so what I've tried to do is really break that down into some tangible skills that people can use to to be more strategic. Because oftentimes, and I'm sure you hear this as well, Bryce. People say, "Well, being strategic, you're you're either born with that or you're not. It's not something that we can teach. I can't teach Marsha or 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 Bill to be strategic." And you know, the research shows that you can move people to be more strategic if they practice it and they have the baseline right. knowledge. So that's really what that we're what we're trying to get here is, you know, doing things like situational awareness, uh, asking good questions, uh, being able to assess the competitive landscape, being able to diagnose a business model. These are all tangible skills that relate to being and help you become more strategic. I love that. And I love what you said about people can do these things if they practice them. Mm -hmm. I had an experience when I was a young reporter that has stuck with me my whole life. I was I was I was a bureau chief for McClatchy up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and and uh, a new golf course had just opened in the in in the commute in the area that I covered, and uh, they had very high end golf course, and they had they had uh, got Patty Sheehan as the resident pro, and at the time she was the LPGA leader, mm -hmm. and so at the to to publicize the la the opening of the golf course. I got to play around a golf with Patty Sheehan, which was the most humiliating experience of my entire life. Um, and you know, if you if you ever want to cure yourself of the desire to play golf, play play golf with the LPGA leader. Um, and 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 I'm not a very good golfer to begin with. And and but about halfway through our game, you know, I just I just watched her, you know, do a do basically Babe Ruth called shot of saying, you know, oh, there's a dog leg on this, on this hole here. I'm going to, I'm going to hit this ball and it's going to go around the trees here and end up right in the middle. And of course it did exactly what she said. Right. And, and I just was like, I give up. And she <laughs> and she said, why? And I, I said, cause, cause it just, there's no way I could ever do that. Right. And she said, that's not true. She said, you could do that. She said, you could do every shot that I've done today. And she said, you could do it if you do what I do. She said, I hit 300 balls a day. I hit 300 balls a day, 365 days a year. I hit wow. 300 balls a day when it's raining. I hit 300 balls a day when it's snowing. I hit 300 balls a day in the middle of summer when it's 118 degrees where I'm at. I hit 300 balls a day on my birthday. I hit 300 balls a day on Christmas. Mm -hmm. She said, if you hit 300 balls a day, you will be able to hit shots like that every time. Yeah. Now I'm not sure if I, you know, could ever be as it. I, I think it would take more than 300 balls to, to be as good as Patty Sheehan, but 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 her point is well taken, and it's not just about golf. It's a it's about any skill in life. You know, it is comes down to the commitment, the investment, and practice in developing these skills. And and as you were talking about before the break, which is so true, is that is that leaders are happy to take 45 minutes out of their day to go jog or to go to the gym. Mm -hmm. But how many of them are willing to take 15 minutes out of their day to go and develop their strategic thinking skills? And if they did, if they made that investment in time to develop those skills, how much more strategic would they become? Right. And, and, and to that point, I love the example with Patty Sheehan. One of the things to consider, so, you know, as a professional golfer, we need to be able, you need to be able to putt well, you need to be able to drive the ball off the tee. There's very distinct skills and activities and behaviors that go into be a professional golfer. What I would suggest is that many leaders haven't really taken that granular view 
of what they do day in and day out that makes them either successful or having room to be more successful? What are the real um, granular behaviors, activities, and skills that go into making you as a leader good at what you do? And I would suggest if we even spent a half hour once a quarter to say, to ask ourselves, what are those things? And then created a mini action plan. So to your point, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to be a professional golfer and hit 300 balls a day, but maybe I'm trying to be a better listener. So for the next four meetings I'm in, I'm going to have a, 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 a stopwatch with me and I'm not going to speak for the first three minutes after my first question, and I'm going to force myself to really actively listen. That's a tangible skill. So again, right. I think as a leader, let's let's de- let's define what are the skills that really could make us better at what we do. I love that because people tend to think of leadership as a skill, and you know, one of the things that we talk about is leadership is not a skill. Leadership is a behavior. Yes, and you know the but but beneath that heading are a whole bunch of skills. Exactly. And one of them is is what you just identified, the ability to listen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something that this is this is the gospel we preach. So I, I, I love talking about this is, that, you know, that, that the best leaders are not the ones who have the best ideas. They're the ones that are the best at surfacing the good ideas that exist in their organization mm-hmm. and acting on those. And you can't do that if you can't listen and hear. And if you walk into the room and tell people the answer, you're never going to hear their answer, which dollars to donuts is going to be better than your answer in most cases. Someone in your organization is going to know more about what needs to be done than you do because they're closer to the coalface. They're closer to the factory floor. They're closer to the customer. And they see things that you're missing sitting in your nice office at the top of the building. Right. And, and, and maybe it's the way that we're trained growing up. You know, when we think about high school and college and graduate school, you know, we're, we're trained to come up with the answer right. and we're not trained to really ask great questions. And I think that goes hand in hand with what you just said from a listening standpoint is as a leader, do I have great questions? Am I always building my repository of questions? Because that's going to set the table for great listening when you ask great questions up front. So like you said, I think those are two, you know, that jumped to mind initially. And, and I agree with you, Bryce. I think if we say, well, I want to be a better leader, that's too, like you said, that's too broad. We need to break that down and say some things that are more, uh, more digestible. I love what you said about school, college, university, grad school. Therein lies the problem because here's the thing. We used to teach this in those, in academia. Yeah. We used to teach applied critical thinking. Right. We used to teach the Socratic method, which is all about asking questions and getting to the truth by listening Mm -hmm. to the answers. And, you know, I, I love this. I just, I just shared this story with, with a client yesterday. Um, you know, the, 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 we, we always, when we talk about where does red team thinking come from, we always go all the way back to Socrates in our, in our, in our timeline, because, you know, this is really, at least in the Western intellectual tradition, the beginning of, of, of somebody in an intentional way, understanding the way to get at the right answer is not to tell people it, but to to ask them questions and listen to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my favorite story about Socrates is, is there was a big crisis in Athens. The Athenians sent a delegation to the Oracle of Delphi to find out what they should do to deal with the crisis. They sacrificed and they went to the Oracle. They said, oh, great Oracle, we have this massive crisis. What should we do? And she said, oh, 
well, you should go back home and ask Socrates what to do because he is the wisest of all the Greeks. Yes. They said, oh, oh, well, we could have saved ourselves a trip, but okay, thank you. <laughs> they went back to Athens. They went to Socrates' house, knocked on the lintel of his door and said, Socrates, we just went to the Oracle of Delphi and she told us to come talk to you because you are the wisest of all the Greeks. And he said, yes, it's true. I am the wisest of all the Greeks because I alone amongst all of you know that I know nothing. Ah, yes. You all think you know what the answer is. I'm the only one who knows that I don't know, but I know how to find out. And it's by asking questions. Yeah. So you're right. We used to teach this though. That's, yep. the, that's the painful thing about this. This used to be the centerpiece of a classical liberal education in the West. And yes. somehow we decided it was better to teach the test and, you know, things like that. Right. We have to get these skills back. What are some of the other skills you think leaders need to develop? Well, under I think, the strategic uh, heading. Yeah. From a strategic standpoint, I think the idea of uh, being able to think differently and you know, when we think about strategy, obviously, in, inherently, you have to have some type of differentiation, either in the activities uh, that you're involved with, your capabilities. There's got to be a form of differentiation that's going to be the the, for, the the foundation of creating that superior value for customers, which leads to competitive advantage. So, to me, one of the other skills is this, this idea of domain jumping, you know, being able to look at your issue or problem and say, how would... How would nature solve this? How would nature, um, you know, counteract a, a cloaking mechanism from one predator to the next? Because that, because nature has addressed a lot of issues. So nature would be one idea. Another way to domain jump is to think about, well, how would another industry, uh, tackle this? So how would the healthcare industry tackle this? Or how would uh, the ride service industry tackle this issue? So the ability to think differently, in my experience, Bryce, with working with leaders is really a critical one. If you're going to take that next step to being even more strategic is 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 to, to think differently and, and to borrow techniques and ideas from other domains, I think is is one that we don't spend enough time doing. I love that domain jumping. I, I have never thought about that in, as, as, a, as a skill before, but it so clearly is. And, you know, to me, some of the thinkers that I most admire are, are just masters of this. I mean, one of our one of our good friends on the show is is Dave Snowden, um, the creator of the Kinefin framework and so many other good, good strategic thinking and decision making tools. And and Dave. Dave finds his his latest thing that he's working on that he just was on the show recently talking about is estuarine mapping, and and I I mean I I like to consider myself a, a pretty literate person, but but I had to have him explain what estuarine meant, <laughs> right. and, and and it's it's from from estuary, from oh. the estuaries of rivers, and this growing yeah. this growing awareness that people have now after we've destroyed most of them. That the, the estuaries of rivers played all sorts of very critical roles in protecting areas from storm damp. It's like, you know, New Orleans had this amazing, uh, natural barrier for hurricanes and stuff historically yeah. that we've now destroyed 95% of. And it's, it's too late to fix in a lot of ways, but it's, it, and so his, his, his domain jumping mm -hmm. is to look at, you know, his, he, he, he's one of the leading thinkers in complexity is how to understand the interconnectedness of things is to look at, at, at what he calls estuarine mapping in the same way that you would map the interconnectedness of all these different ecosystems and waterways and stuff in an estuary. 
Yes. Looking at this as, an, as a metaphor to understand mapping the different connections between things in a business problem or a, strate- or a military problem or a mm-hmm. geopolitical problem. And so domain jumping is an incredibly powerful concept. Um, and, and it's also good because it gets people looking at the problem from a different point of view, from a different lens. And to me, one of the best ways to free up creative thinking, to free up ideas and insights is to simply you know, metaphorically stand up and look at the problem from the, from the other side. Mm, yes. Yeah. I, I like that idea of looking at things from the other side, um, you know, from a competitive perspective, what would the comp- competition do? Obviously that's, you know, you, you know, right in your sweet spot. Um, but, but also thinking about, you know, the, the non-traditional um, players in markets or the non-traditional customers, non-users, you know, what's yeah. their perspective? So I, I like, I really like your idea there of, 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 you know, being on the other side of this and, and taking other perspectives because we do get into mental ruts. And I think, you know, conversations like this for me, you know, help get me out of my mental ruts. Absolutely. And expose me to some, some conversations. And you and Marcus obviously do a great job with the podcast to, you know, to give lots of folks out there uh, ways to get out of our mental ruts. And I think that's one of the things that we need to challenge ourselves with, you know, especially as we move from one year to the next is what are my sources of insight and information and how can I jumble those up and change those moving into next year? We've got to find different sources to, to stimulate those new, that, those, that new thinking. You're, you're so right, Rich. And, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're one of, one of the many cognitive biases that exist is, is the cur- what they call the curse of knowledge. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's refers to the fact that we have a hard time looking at problems from the perspective of people who don't have our experience, our, our insights, our knowledge of the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's often talked about in terms of, you know, uh, helping, you know, helping leaders understand that you have to explain things more clearly or, or, or make the case in a, in a way that it makes more sense to people who don't understand blah, blah, blah. I mean, that I'm not blah, blah, blah. That's important. Sure. I didn't mean to dismiss that. Um, I, I, I'm fast forwarding because there's another aspect of it, which is that, um, Often, and this goes again to your domain jumping thing, is thinking about the problem from the perspective of people who don't have your knowledge mm-hmm. and your experience can help reveal important insights. And the biggest example I can think of of that is I had an opportunity um, many years ago, as will be clear from the, the example, of sitting down with the, the four founders of Palm um, oh. right after the Palm Pilot had had become you know, the game changing technology of, of, of the day. Um, and, you know, I said, you know, I said, I, I've got a drawer with, you know, Newton and uh, I don't remember what Casio had, had a PDA, you know, and stuff. Oh, I, I have a drawer full of handheld computers, um, you know, collecting, collecting dust. Sure. What, what did you know that no one else knew that allowed you to create a handheld computer that changed the world. Mm-hmm. And they said, we didn't know anything that, that anyone else didn't know. It's just that we decided not to look at this as engineers. Mm-hmm. And they explained that because all of them had worked to like two of them had worked for Microsoft on Microsoft's uh, handheld computer at the time. I don't remember what it was called and stuff like this. And mm-hmm. they had all worked with, with different companies that had developed handheld computers, mm-hmm. personal digital assistants, as we called those in the day. Um, and they said that every, every team they were part of, approach the problem of here's the here's the technology we have we can put this chip and this much memory and this high this resolution screen in this box what could we do with that and as engineers 
we would sit and, you know, like the Microsoft team, they said, oh, we could watch videos. We could do all this stuff. Yeah, the videos are going to be the size of a postage stamp, but we could do it. So let's do that because that would be cool and all this stuff. They said, when we designed the first Palm, we started not with our tech specs. We started with our our physical device Mm -hmm. and the human machine interface expert that we were working with. Mm -hmm. And we said, how many buttons can we put on this device comfortably so that yeah. they're easy to use? And their, their, their interface people said, we can put four buttons on this. And they said, great. So th- this device can only do four things. What are those four things? Yeah. And, you know, they were contacts, notes, calendar, and to-do list. Right. And we didn't have, we, you know, later they added email, but that was, that was to, to come. And the point is they said they, that we thought about, so what are the four things that customers, not engineers, but the, if, if, if customers had this device in, in, in their pocket would choose what would, if they could only have four, what would those four things be? And that's how they picked it. And then they built the device to do those four things perfectly. So that's completely looking at this. Not yeah. as an engineer, but as 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 someone who's got this device doesn't know anything about what it can do. They don't care. They don't care what right. it can do. They just care what the four buttons are. Right. Yeah. And and that's it's that's a really wonderful example. And I love the fact that you were really kind of on ground zero there with those folks because I've read the case studies and it's fascinating. And again, I think Bryce, to your point, we we just need to step back and think about what are the areas that we don't know about. And too often, again, when I, when I do strategic planning sessions, it's amazing to me. People say, well, we know our competitor. We, you know, we know what products they have. We know what services they have. We know how many people they have. But when we start to get into the minutia about, well, how are they using their resources to change the value dynamic in the industry? Then all of a sudden things get cloudier. So to your point, let, let's, let's take a really, let's take an explorer or discoverer's mindset. Not, not to your point earlier, we know everything, but let's, let's look at this as an explorer. We're, we're, we're jumping in the ship and we're going to set, you know, we're going to be going perpendicular to shore. And what can we learn today? To me, that's a powerful question. What can we learn today? I love that. I love that. The explorer's mindset. So folks, there it is. There's the answer right there. Cultivate the explorer's mindset. Rich, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to have you back on the show. We barely scratched the surface on this stuff. Folks, if this interested you and it interested me, check out Rich's new book, Strategic, and buy it on Amazon now or wherever books are sold. Rich, it's been a pleasure. Bryce, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.